Um, I have a couple questions to get started. Um, and uh, feel free, whoever. Um, we talked a little bit about end of life. I, uh, you know, what happens to the car when it finally reaches whatever that time is? And is that a consideration in the materials the vehicle's made of? And f feel free to jump in, whoever would like to answer that. I'd be happy to start. Okay, all right, <laughs> don't be shy. And actually, I think Charlie could um, probably add yeah. some, not yep. to put you on the yep. spot, Charlie, yeah. but. <laughs> you're on the spot, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, uh, being with the steel industry and with the positive story that we have, of course, we want to influence the industry. Um, but no, I mean, right now in the, the US specifically, um, I don't think the end of the life is really considered uh, in the vehicle. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that, there are so many different criteria that the engineer has to design a vehicle to. That's the last thing on their mind. If it's not regulated, uh, it's not something the customer's asking for, it's, it's not addressed. So, um, but just with the environmental concerns and uh, the EPA getting involved with uh, life cycle, or with um, emissions during the use phase, uh, you know, it just, studies have shown that it's something that should be considered. If you're really consider, concerned about the environment and emissions, you should look at the entire process of a vehicle. Yeah, Kevin, I don't know if you want to answer, or Richard, if you've done work in that area. Uh, generally, we're just doing the simulation side of it, yeah. the upfront, so a lot of times we're just looking at, we're kind of selfishly looking at the material, what's going to be the lightest yeah. for that application. Other groups tend to worry about that. Yeah, so we, we do look at recyclability. Um, Regulations vary around the globe. Uh, Europe has some recyclability requirements that, that drive uh, somewhat different decisions. I wouldn't say it's the primary decision, but there are considerations that you'll make economically because if you're able to recycle the vehicle or if, if nothing else, the offall that may come from the process, that can be an advantageous consideration. And it kind of goes to Richard's point as we look at the total economic picture of manufacturing. Okay, thank you. This question's for David. How, you said your company in Providence is 27 employees? Yeah. Yeah, how, how do you work with gigantic corporations that employ, you know, tens of thousands of employees? Very how, carefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of the David and Goliath sort of thing going on? I think the hardest part of working with big companies, and most of you can probably appreciate this, is the, the, uh, the distinction and difference in, in what time phasing is, like the speed that we work with, this, which is the speed or the speed difference that they work with. Our, our assessment of speed is very short. Theirs is, they have a much longer event horizon. And so I think that's the hardest challenge on a day-to-day -day basis is working with steel mills that think in quarters, where we think in days. So when they think they're making great progress because they did another melt in four months, we're thinking, well, why didn't it happen yesterday versus four months? So for us, the largest thing, it, working with those people is like it is in any business, finding the right people to work with. And you have to start with the highest people you can work with. You work with a junior engineer, you'll never get anywhere. You've got to talk, you've got to, talk to the people that are involved in the strategy that can truly make the decisions and help drive it through the organization. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let's open it up to some questions. Way in the back, Rich. Hang on, I'll even bring you the mic. Uh, this is, uh, I guess anyone, but it directed more towards uh, uh, Kevin. Uh, and that's a, it's a question on uh, additive manufacturing. And uh, when you're doing the number of reiterations that you were talking about, 
how much do you use out of the manufacturing of parts so that you're, you know, you can get a quick turnover and get back to doing the, uh, the tests on, on the vehicle? When you're talking about additive manufacturing, you mean like 3D printing and that type 3D of thing? 3D printing yeah. of some of the parts. Yeah, that would be the ideal state. I mean, if you look at a lot of the optimization tools, they're really set up to try to put material where it has the most benefit. So if you could get to the flexibility where you could literally print material where you would want it, that would be the ideal situation. But what you could see like with what we were trying to do with punching the holes, we're trying to work within the process we have, the, the incumbent, and that, so where we, we know we have a stamped steel, and then we're looking for those cold areas and trying to punch them out. Some of the, actually the tools that are the easiest to use are the ones that kind of just look at topology. And if you could just look at a topology design, top, top, topological optimization, it would tell you exactly where that material needs to be. And if you could go and print that, that would be the ideal situation. But I think we got a lot of momentum to overcome with incumbents and incumbent processes and the costs associated with it. That's why I think it was kind of an interesting combination of, of the different players here. Um, but if you could actually get to the, the point where you're actually 3D printing a control arm, you could have a very intricate, every little piece where they want it. You know, I think the, uh, the, the, the cowl side that Charlie showed in his, where because it was a casting process, they could put every little rib where they wanted it to be. Yeah. Now, if you could yeah. picture that, and, and again, you had, the challenges are to make it actually a part that you can cast. Now, if you can imagine the flexibility of being able to print that and put the pieces where you want it, that would be the ideal situation. But I think we've got to get those types of material properties to where we actually know how to make them on a continual basis with the robustness we have in, in the current manufacturing process. I think there's probably a long ways to go, but that's an exciting area to be considering. We have a question in the back. Hey, how are you? Um, my question is on the use of uh, magnesium in cars. Magnesium is a flammable metal, and um, I would like to know your thoughts on that. There's more and more of it in, uh, in cars each day. Yeah, so um, I guess I'll, I'll start with that. I, magnesium does have some flammability issue. It's a surface area thing. So working with magnesium powder, you have to be quite careful about um, oxidation and then explosion of the thing. In the metallic sheet state, you probably don't have a flammability problem. But from your supply chain, you will have to manage something mm -hmm. about it. So I wouldn't worry about it from the car, but I might worry about it from a manufacturing. In, a, in an accident? Or like no, I'm not at that state. No. I mean, we've had them in uh, cross car beams under the IP for at least 20 years that I know of. And, uh, you know, the material cost is obviously very high, you know, as, as Richard showed. But in applications, there's places for them. Uh, in, in vehicle, we've had them at least for 20 years in cross-car beams that I'm aware of. I have a question over here. So uh, I would imagine that at any given time you're trying to engineer the best car that you possibly can and you have many different considerations to think about when you're, when you're doing that. But how does a change in administration change the way that you're going to look at lightweighting a vehicle? Are your goals different? Um, you know, uh, if we've sort of, if we're going to step away from 54 and a half miles per gallon by 2020, how much does that change what you're going to do uh, in the next five to 10 years? Um, that's always hard to predict, right? I don't think the, there's any, any forecast on how that'll change. But honestly, the, the most simple way to look at it is deliver what the customer wants. And uh, they're really the, the primary driver of the way we shape any vehicle toward any segment, 
toward any specific target. So, uh, frankly, that's that's the leading uh, consideration that we make, and we study it extensively. I mean, we do exceptional research because we're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars and and hundreds of thousands of man hours to develop any product. So we really study the customer. And in the end, if you deliver what the customer needs and wants, you'll win. And, and that's, I, I, that's a very oversimplification of the automobile industry, but frankly, that's, that's what you have to target or you'll take your eye off the ball. There's also, there's two other things to also consider. One is your, your life cycle of that design. It's not, you don't redesign every year. And so you, you have to look out a little further than three or four years and say, I have to live with this platform design for five, six, yeah. eight years sometimes. So you can't really make your decisions on a whim based on what's going to happen in the next two or three years. And then you also have the fact that designs are done globally now in, yeah. in quite a bit of instances. So you're not necessarily designing your base structure for just the automotive re uh, requirements in the U.S. You're looking at the European requirements as well and the Japanese requirements and something like that. So it is a broader decision. I don't think... I don't think most of the people in the, in the decision-making process at this level are looking at whether things are repealed or not is going to totally impact the long term. It may impact yeah. the short term, but not the long term. Yeah, I'd agree. That's a really good comment. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and we were um, concerned about that, too, because of recent activities with the EPA uh, making a determination for CAFE for 2022 to 2025 and then having it over with the new administration and and everybody in Washington tells us you know presidents come and go but the rest of us are here for life so so yeah, it's, certainly are. It, it, yeah. it definitely is long term and we're really looking more I think all of us are trying to look to the future and and not to be swayed too much by politics but just look at innovation and technology and you know what what's good for all of us Maybe a good point would be yeah. to Charlie. You, you talked about the Equinox, right? Yep. When did that? When did Penn go to paper for that Equinox? Roughly four years ago. So there you go. So it's just hitting the market now, but I it mean, started. The concept was four years ago. Yeah, but I mean, we go course to fine, of course, and there's a lot more work at the end than at the beginning. But but that's where you really start to study the market and make sure you understand the target. And it is always built on forecasts, right? There's always some anticipation of the external environment and the internal environment. But so we are a long lead industry. The shorter we can make that, the more responsive we can be to any particular change. But um, again, we, we are a long lead industry based on the way we're currently constructed. The long lead aspect of it, like when you're talking about the higher strength materials, your third generation of high strength materials and the effort that goes into <laughs> developing those and then develop them early enough that they can get into the lead time that goes into that vehicle development cycle. There's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of time that goes mm -hmm. into it. For us to be able to use those, we've got to develop the new modeling techniques to be able even to use those. They kick off new manufacturing, whether how efficiently those parts can be stamped. So there is a long, long ripple effect that these have such that, you know, irregardless of the current administration, we got to be planning on what these different alternatives might have to be in the future. You know, there was a point where what the customer wanted was a, an incredibly fuel efficient car, and that went away pretty quickly when the price of gasoline went down to, you know, under $2 a gallon. So, so that's like, so, so maybe if that's the consideration rather than the political climate, you know, there, there, there's going to be some fluctuation along the way, I guess. Yeah, there always will be, right? And But it doesn't move perfectly with fuel prices. I right. mean, purchase decisions are not correlated perfectly with fuel prices. And so 
again, customers buy vehicles for a range of reasons, um, a wide range. And uh, fuel economy is clearly one and very important, but it's not the sole reason. So we got to design to the many criteria that they have. Great, thank you. We have a question in the back here. Good afternoon. I have a couple of questions oh, well, for two people. One's for Richard, and then one's for Kevin. And the first one for Kevin is, uh, does the shape of the holes matter? And if it does, which is the, I'll call it the best shape? <laughs> <laughs> Great question, because again, you know, we, 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 I'm trying to highlight the how we control those shapes, right? So we, we, you know, the neat thing, you know, you talk about the time it takes to do these things. A lot of the enablers for the are the preprocessors we call them, the things that help us create these finite element models, and they've come up with some very innovative and creative ways that allow us to change those shapes. So we can put in dimensions that make them wider. We can we could put in a radii control on every one of those corners. Some of the challenge is the more parameters you have you add, the more runs you need to make. So if I run 10 parameters, I wanna do a 10X, that's 100. And I gotta do that for every load case I need to do. So we always try to come up with trying to, to minimize the number of parameters, but yet lets us explore, explore the design space. So, and then the thing is, what's the optimum? There's, it's gonna be dependent on the load case. That's why it's very important that we, we showed the example of, of durability and fatigue, but then we gotta turn around and check it for NVH, and then we gotta turn around and check it for safety, because what might be the optimum for durability could turn around and be an issue for you know, the impact of the crush or the NVH or another aspect. So there's not any one optimum. It really, you have to look at, and again, it's really where the tools have come. They've come a long way that allow us to explore a lot of that design space for multiple load cases. The other question's for Richard, and, and I was th thinking about the engineering scrap. After a stamping a sheet, let's say for a, a, a side section of the car, and the door section has now been removed from the stamping, is that piece of metal uh, still usable to be stamped into something small, smaller with the same amount of strength? Yeah, so it, it is, but managing that can be challenging because I have this piece of metal that at, is at the end of a blanking line. It's not where my medical metal delivery comes in. Generally, what you'll find is that they'll do something called a nested blank where even in blanking the, um, the piece for making the door opening, they will simultaneously be doing the blank right in that same process for the smaller part. Often, in theory, I can do it, and in practice, often it becomes impractical, which is what drives up some of these engineering scrap. But the cost of the metal being a significant portion of the cost of the overall body, the automakers have worked quite hard to optimize and to squeeze this out. It's still inevitable that you end up with on the order of 50, 55% mm -hmm. engineering scrap when you stand. I don't know if I can put it in a question form, but something's rattling around in my head that relates to steel. To steel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that is, um, um, imagine a, a highly engineered steel product, right, from Providence. <laughs> and, and it's manufactured into either a sheet or into, a, into a, an ingot, if you will. And then, you form it into a part that's planned way in advance because when you form the metal, its characteristics change, right? 
and then, then you stamp a hole in it, and then you join it in multiple different ways. The, the highly engineered steel, when you look at it microscopically, started out one way. By the time you've done five other things to it in five different fashions, it's not the same when you look at it microscopically anymore. So, like, like I said, I'm not sure I can make it a question, but is, is there a lot of sort of deep thinking and planning that goes into how these materials, these more advanced steels, end up being practically employed without screwing them up so that they're no longer highly engineered steels. <laughs> just, they lose all the good stuff that you sort of... Uh, Put into it. You follow me? I definitely follow you. Okay. Believe me, I've been I, I've been the CEO of the company for 11 years, and so when I got there, the guys who hired me said, two years, Dave, it'll be done." Right? And here I am, 11 years later, because the challenge is just what you said. It's not about making a material that has great, wonderful properties in a square blank. It's about what do those properties look like when it's all done. And so what you're referring to is phase transformation. What happens to the steel when you cold work it, or when you anneal it, or heat treat it? Do all these things to it. Cut holes in it. The edges around the holes. All that stuff has to be taken into consideration, and it is. And that's why our steels didn't come to market five years ago. Our first ones did, our first ones tried, and we learned. And we do it again, and you learn. And so we're a heck of a lot smarter about designing these steels and what goes on in the steel, the transformations that happen in the steel, going from an austenite to a ferrite, or something like that. Every step of the way has to be understood. And that's to the point that Kevin was mentioning earlier. This, it takes a while to get there. You, even if you design a material that works great, and this is not just steel, it doesn't really matter. Even if you design any material, using it is where the rubber hits the road. And that's where these guys, that, that iterative process of working together is the only way it works. You know, we were showing just the durability analysis here, but long before we're even doing a durability or an impact analysis, there's the forming analysis. So the, almost the same tools that we use, the software as we tool, tool, tools that we use, they use those to simulate actually the stamping of the part. Mm -hmm. They'll predict the strain, the hardening, they'll predict the thinning, and, and where it's appropriate, we'll actually include those into our analysis as well. So those are actually very critical aspects. And the critical things to, to even kick off that is that having the, the necessary material properties to run these analysis. So there's a whole chain of events you got to have the original material properties. You got to know how they change through the straining effect, such that you can simulate that. You got to run the simulation, apply that to the next model, see how that affects NVH, durability, impact, and then cycle back through it again. So on that same topic, you're at RAM, at FCA, right? At RAM. Across across all the vehicle lines, but yeah. Okay, but 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 imagine that, that you're working with nano steel, and you nail. It. You guys have got it. But you're with GM, and now you know what you've already figured out with him. Mm -hmm. Is that proprietary? <laughs> how, do you, how do you manage the, the intellectual property? While you think of your response, let me jump in. No comment. Because <laughs> I had something I wanted to add. <laughs> I can answer that, but go ahead. Okay. Uh, it, we've been doing this with, with other seal grades. Um, and. And we do that through the auto steel partnership. So it, it's it's actually a lot of this is pre-competitive. The customer doesn't care, you know. the The automakers just want to get it right. It's getting more and more expensive to bring out vehicles. So the more we can collaborate, the quicker we can bring it to market and have it being high performance. So through the auto steel partnership, it's a partnership between automakers and the steel industry through SMDI. 
we study manufacturing enablers and we figure out the formability and what happens to it when you form the part, what happens to it when you weld the part, what's the best way to weld it, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, there there is quite a bit of work that goes on behind the scenes and a lot of that is, is considered pre-competitive. Uh, she's absolutely right. There's a lot of competition there and there's a lot of proprietary information that's exchanged. That being said, the beauty is ultimately everyone's designing cars that are trying to do basically the same thing. So safety requirements are the, basically the same. Efficiency requirements are basically the same. So a steel grade that works for Chrysler is going to fit most of the needs absolutely. of a GM. Right? And so we don't necessarily design a different steel for every last application or every last customer with the same application. He's making a B pillar, he's making a B pillar, they're gonna have the same general requirements. So we've been fortunate enough to say that for the most part, if we can design a steel that works for a B pillar for GM, we can move that same product into Daimler. And in fact, we do, we do stamping trials at GM, the exact same stamping trials at Daimler, and the same ones we would do at Chrysler. But there is a lot of information in there that's proprietary. There is. You know, there's some basic material properties we can get from the, the steel suppliers, but generally a lot of the stuff we apply to our models, we have to go out and spend the time measuring it because everybody's got their secret recipe. I mean, through the, like the Society of Automotive Engineers, there's a lot of standards that are established, but there's a lot of, you really need to go in there. You gotta measure your supplied materials. You gotta really understand how they're used. You gotta do it specifically, the tests to support your analysis. Yes, they're all, we're all kind of rowing in the same direction, but you know, most of that, a lot of those material properties we have to encrypt because you, you, otherwise you could walk out with them. Mm -hmm. They're actually very valuable and expensive data to collect. Yeah. All right, thank you. We have time for a couple more questions. I think we want to have one here and one here, Roger. Thanks, this is for Kevin. You've uh, talked about the iterations that you put together for that, cutting holes in those frames. My question is, we, we talked earlier, the first gentleman from MIT said his phone doesn't even work uh, all the time. So I'm asking about your computer program. <laughs> Do you build this at some point in time and then try to twist it and break it? Or do you just rely on the computer and say, good job? Definitely build and test, for sure. Uh, but again, the thing is, there's a long, long history of it, right? So, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, we, we, we kind of have a, a growth in the load cases we need to do. So, you know, in our career times, you know, they were running like one or two federal requirements. Now there's 50 to 60 requirements. Now we're competing in um, many markets. We got third-party requirements. So the number of load cases we have to increase. So where the challenges become is we're always doing something new. Where, whereas if we, if we just had to meet the old 208 requirement from the federal regulations, we could get really, really close to doing everything except for the final validation test. They need the validation. But the fact that now we've got to do a narrow offset, and then when you go to this narrow offset, it starts ripping the steel apart. So what before, we just had to look at a simple crushing of it. Now we've got to look at the fracturing of these things. We've got to look out the weld areas are affected. So the thing is, it's, it, the, the requirements that we're digging into are constantly evolving. So because of that, yes, there's always a lot of validation that's required. But we always look for the most efficient way to do it. Build the full vehicle and test it when it's most appropriate. But you can also do a lot of components, material testing long before that, right? So you don't always have to build the full thing. But it is critical to definitely have the validation and testing done. But the thing is, you're never going to evaluate a thousand different lightning holes. But the thing is, we can narrow in on a few solutions very confidently, build some components, test them, build a full vehicle, validate them. 
Charlie, this question is for you. Uh, going back to your initial uh, presentation, I was really fascinated by the diagram of the uh, ATS uh, compared to the CT6 with that particular panel. Yep. Uh, how much, everything's consideration, but how much consideration is made um, in the perspective of a body shop owner or just the customer when there's a collision in that area, given the difference in number of parts between you know the ATS and the CT6? Yeah, I mean, it, it's always a consideration, um, and, and that's another item that I'll, I'll speak to globally. I mean, there are there are insurance tick ratings. I don't know if you're familiar with what they call tick ratings. In, in other places, they evaluate cars based on their ability to be repaired. Uh, we do consider that. Um, in a higher cost, lower volume product, you have to balance the potential for insurance costs against the manufacturing costs. Right? In the end, the customer will pay for that right and we have to make a trade-off that seems rational and reasonable on behalf of the customer but it is a consideration we do look at what that increased uh, insurance cost may have and, and again the goal is to minimize those events as opposed to have them but we do plan it incorporate it in the way that we make our determination all right great Jim did you have a question about eight years ago, my state's DOT changed the chemical mix used during winter storms and suddenly rust came back with a ferocious uh, intensity. And I was wondering how you test for that, uh, to what extent you can anticipate changes in chemical mixes. Do you have a computer program that will predict when this piece of sheet metal will perforate? But the roads are safer though. <laughs> We had there. There's computer simulations that try to look at uh, like the fluid flow through an e-coat system, and will that material reach into every little corner and, and nook? But actually going through and actually calculating the, the corrosion of the material, I haven't been involved in that. But looking at it from a like a CFD, a computational fluid dynamics, and does the material that does the e-coat material actually get in there at a, a density value that'll actually deposit enough materials? They do get into that type of simulations. Yeah. There are different standards for that. Salt fog testing, there's numerous different types of standards that you have to do and pass. And that's why almost all the steels that are in cars today are galvanized. You know, you don't just leave them open to the exposure. Looks like Cliff Atia's got the last question. All right. Oh, I just hit a pothole or what I thought was a moon crater uh, recently with my <laughs> Must car. Must have been in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> there were three cars on the side of the road, you know, with flat tires. When I got my car inspected, I was just amazed that there was just a just a very slight bend in the rim and that just made me just think about how strong these materials including the suspension all these metal parts have to be and what they can actually withstand i'm just curious and all this and stronger is part of our topic here what kind of i don't know consumer facing innovation you might have is there is there more dent resistance on metal panels you know is, is there are there even stronger wheels where they wouldn't bend at all in the future i mean i'm just curious well, what kind of things people might well, expect from all this that they could benefit from yeah i mean let me tell you in those cases we do have specific tests of varying severity for things just like potholes and and they have a a profile a load profile that we put in and we run them in simulation as well to determine not just what it does to the wheel uh, but what it also does to the shock tower takes the majority of that load. So we do, in fact, we collect road data um, from, I, I, I'll get the number wrong, but many regions around the world to understand what the input is to the, to the chassis as an example. So we use that to determine what severity we will conduct these step tests um, to simulate and very closely simulate potholes. 
In the case of wheels, we do look very closely at that, but some of that's customer preference as well. The tire OD and what we call rim to ground or that, that dimension, um, frankly, if you're in a sports car with a very low rim to ground, uh, the, you know, it's much more susceptible to it where we have cars that are much more immune. So part of it is customer choice, but we do test. We do actually measure road conditions across a wide range around the globe and then use those as inputs to our models to determine how they should be designed and what, what covers the majority of the, the customer use. I don't know, Kevin, you guys see the same things. That yeah, I would have had a pretty, we, very we, similar answer. I mean, you, you really, again, if you can think of a, a load case that a customer cares about, you know, we, we really either have that in our, what are, we call our DVPNR, our design verification plan, and if it's a design verification plan, we're working to simulate it. And we even call them pothole one, pothole two, and pothole three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like to give you a more scientific explanation of what we call them, but it's not. So, but I tell you what, they're, they are very, very precisely engineered based upon the data that we have. So They're very aggressive. They're very <laughs> aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Leave your dentures at home. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, we have just about run out of time. I'd like to thank our panel. They were phenomenal. Uh, a brilliant discussion, I thought. And uh, I think we're about ready to... Take a little bit of a break, and uh, <laughs> if that's if that's if that's okay. Uh, but thank you all very much. I, I hope everybody learned learned something. I know I did, and uh, you know this was a, a great learning experience. And, and again, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.